Welcome to another edition of On the Line, a podcast that focuses on British Columbia's rich labour heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. February is Black History Month in Canada. On the Line has marked the occasion this year with a look back at the fascinating history of sleeping car porters, almost all of whom were black. They were essential during the heyday of overnight train travel. It's a story that has only recently started to be told, combining the history of black employment in Canada, unionization, and the fight for dignity and equality on the rails. Kudos to the CBC for its current series on sleeping car porters called simply The Porter. Recommended. We examine those long-ago days, mostly through the voice of Warren Williams, whose uncle, Lee Williams, was in the forefront of the drive to organize the sleeping car porters. Warren is currently president of QP Local 15, representing inside workers at the city of Vancouver. But in the early 1980s, he worked for the railways, including a short time as a sleeping car porter himself. By then, thanks to his uncle Lee and other porters who stood up to the railway companies, much had changed for blacks on the rails. What follows are excerpts from an interview I did with Warren Williams last year. Warren talked about the history of sleeping car porters in Canada and his family's experience on the rails, beginning with his own time working on the railroad. Hola. I hear the I hear the whistle blow That she blow just like She ain't gonna blow no more But by that time, uh, uh, you had uh, blacks working, as I said myself, as a dining car steward was unheard of back in my uncle's day and my grandfather's day. and so you had uh, blacks working as dining car stewards and as service managers and uh, sleeping car conductors. Still didn't have any uh, blacks working as train conductors or brakemen or, uh, or not that I know of, or um, engineers or firemen. Uh, that was still predominantly held by uh, uh, white. There were a couple of indigenous fellows doing that work in northern BC. But uh, yeah, uh, my grandfather, interestingly enough, was very upset when I hired on with the railway. When he found out that I'd hired on with the railway, he was not happy about it at all. Uh, at the time, you know, he had, they had dealt with a lot of racism, uh, et cetera, and he made it quite clear that that's not something he wanted his grandsons to be doing. And But he said, Barty, it's nothing I can do about it now. You've signed on. I'm just going to tell you how to take care of yourself in close quarters. And that's this, that's the truth. He did that and, uh, and be careful and uh, do the, do your job to the best of your abilities and you'll be doing it better than most. And they'll have no reason to come after you, but they will come after you. Yeah. 
Warren's ancestors on both his father and mother's side fled the racism of the United States to settle in rural Saskatchewan. A church built by his mother's family still stands and is now a heritage site. And the Saskatchewan government just uh, uh, <clears throat> recently, in the last 10 years or so, uh, designated the church, it's a log-hewn church, uh, uh, built, they call it the Shiloh people, uh, by the, my descendants, my, my uh, great-grandfather, Caesar Lane. Uh, um, wow. Built the church, and they've just designated it a heritage site. Uh, so there's still, our, and my ancestors, uh, some of my ancestors are, are buried there in the church there, so the plaque and et cetera. And that's, you know, that's my family. Wow. wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so what did they do in Hill, in, was it Hillside? Yeah, Hillside. They're farmers. They came up in farming. I believe at the time the government was, uh, it's interesting, the government was offering, in Canada it was 60 acres and a mule, I think it was. And in the United States it was 40 acres, and you've probably seen the logo, right? Uh, so that's so that, they, you know, they're trying to, of course, this is during Jim Crow era and in the United States. And so we, a lot of blacks were uh, migrating north to Canada. And it got to the point that um, the Canadian government in 1911 put a band on uh, uh, blacks migrating, immigrating to right. Canada. They did it for a year, apparently, yeah, apparently for a year. That had an impact on Warren's family. They had to move in search of work. That brought them to the railroad. Because, of course, it was hard for uh, blacks to get work, right? Um, and so the families eventually either moved east to Winnipeg or west to Alberta. And, uh, and and like my uncle Lee, for instance, uh, his first he got a job in South Battleford on the and that's where he got his first job with the CNR, and then the family migrated to to Winnipeg, uh, just like a lot of uh, black families did. The railway was the hub for uh, Canada at the time, and Winnipeg was central to all of Canada at the time, and so everything went base everything went through Winnipeg at one time. Um, yeah, both rail lines. And both rail lines uh, exactly went through Winnipeg to CPR, Canadian Pacific Railway, and Canadian National Railway. And so, the, the, so my my uh, grandfather uh, Carl Williams and his brothers Lee Williams and Chester and all they migrated to Winnipeg and uh, started working on the on the railway. My grandfather and uh, one of his a couple of his brothers Tommy and Roy worked on for CP Rail, and my uncle Lee. Uh, worked on uh, Canadian National Railways with the, and at that time it was uh, uh, Canadian blacks uh, from you know that had migrated from the United States and or were born here who worked on the railway and then you started getting an influx of uh, uh, Caribbean peoples uh, black people from Caribbean from uh, the West Indies Jamaica and Nova Scotia started to come to Winnipeg and migrated to Winnipeg uh, for work. Yeah. They hired on as porters for the railway's sleeping cars. They're all sleeping car porters. My uh, my grandfather was a um, he had a trade. He was a, a stuckler. You might remember what stuckle is. Like my grandfather did that that type of work on the side, but he couldn't get work. He was very good at it. And when he did get work, people would watch him work. Apparently, apparently he was that good at it and, and fast. And that was the thing. And, but he couldn't, he, he just couldn't maintain work because they weren't hiring blacks in Winnipeg. And the only place that he could get hired 
was on the railway. And that's what happened with a lot of the blacks. And it was, you know, in the community, it was um, a good paying job, you know, steady work wasn't good paying, but it was steady work, um, money coming into the family, you could raise a family on it. And you had a bit of um, prestige in the community. I, mean, I don't think I ever seen any of my uncles or my grandfather at any time else, uh, not wearing a suit, except if they were in the house. But if they went out, there were a suit, a jacket, tie, and off they'd go. And that's how they would go to work. And that's how they presented themselves at work. The tradition of black sleeping car porters had begun in the 19th century, when George Pullman invented the pull-out berth. Pullman wanted blacks to make up the berths and cater to overnight travelers, because he considered the job akin to domestic service. Canada's two main railway companies, Canadian National and Canadian Pacific, maintained the tradition. In an age rife with discrimination, as Warren mentioned, work on the trains was one of the few jobs blacks could get with steady wages. Daniel Peterson, father of famed Canadian jazz pianist Oscar Peterson, was a sleeping car porter. So it may have been no coincidence that the song most associated with Oscar Peterson was the classic jazz tune, Night Train. But it was far from a dream job. Porters were on call to sleeping car passengers around the clock. In addition to making up and then reconverting their berths in the morning, they carried and stowed their luggage, pressed their clothes, shined their shoes for a tip if they were lucky, served them food and drinks, and did anything else a passenger might want. They had to provide their own uniforms, and they had no job security. If a passenger complained, they could be fired, just like that. As if all that wasn't enough, shifts typically lasted three days yet there was no fixed place for them to sleep. You very rarely back in those days, up until 1940, you didn't even have a berth. And then after 1940, you may get a berth if there was room. But even if there wasn't room, even if there was room prior to 1940, you didn't get a berth. And what you, uh, what they had, what they had on each car was called a jump seat. And it was about just wide enough for you to sit on. And it, they called it a jump seat because the bell would ring and you'd look up on the board and you'd see, okay, I had to go to this room. So you'd jump up and then you st- that seat that was on a, on a hinge and it would fold, jump back up into the wall, right? And so that, that basically, you didn't, you, you slept in that seat, basically. You, you, didn't get, you didn't have even the, you didn't even have the dignity of having a place to sleep. And of course, you know, like you're, you're cleaning up people's messes and 24-7, yeah. Any time of day or night at their beck and call without it, absolutely. And you better, you better be polite. You better be courteous. You better be smiling. Uh, you better not give them any reason to uh, be upset because you could. They, you know, they have, they would write you up, and if you received sixty demerits, you'd be you'd be fired. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And if you became what was called in the day two familiar or too friendly with uh, white pass- female passengers, that was pretty much an automatic year, year gone fired, right? You had to act like they weren't there pretty much, you know, and just deal with the men. They were expected to be sub- subservient also, right? Not only to the passengers, but to the white uh, 
workers on the railway and of course the employer too right so it was not a it was it was um it was a load that they carried but they carried it well um and uh we're proud of the work that they did they took a great pride in the work they did and which is why my grandfather put that lesson on me do it as best as you can and you'll be doing it better than most and you know it was um you know i mean i i had the experience of um, being asked by a passenger to shine their shoes back in when I was on the road, and I told them, no, I don't do that, and they were surprised. Sleeping car porters realized early on that they had to fight back against the way they were treated. In those days, the best way to do that was through a union. But when porters sought to join the Canadian Brotherhood of Railway Employees, the union proved just as racist as the railway bosses. They turned their back on the porters because they were black. So in 1917, the Canadian porters courageously formed their own union. The Order of Sleeping Car Porters, based in Winnipeg, was the first black labor union in North America. Two years later, despite the way they had been treated by the white railway union, 90 porters took part in the six-week Winnipeg general strike in 1919. Most were never hired back. The Canadian Sleeping Car Porters Union won some gains from Canadian National, but the CPR proved a tougher nut to crack. After 12 union activists were fired by the railway, attempts to organize porters for CPR ground to a halt. They revived in the late 1930s, when the US-based Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters expanded into Canada. After several years of secret organizing to avoid being fired, Canadian porters voted to unionize in 1942. It took three years of tough negotiations before they were finally able to sign a union contract with the CPR. The breakthrough contract gave porters a monthly salary increase, two weeks paid vacation, overtime pay, and at last, a reserved berth on each passenger car so porters actually had a guaranteed place to sleep. One more thing, porters could now put up name plaques in their sleeping cars. No longer would they be anonymous or George, as passengers often called them. The contract was the first time a union organized by blacks had negotiated such a detailed agreement with a Canadian company. Still, on-the-job discrimination remained. Black porters continued to be denied promotion. They were unable to become conductors or even work in the meal cars. Warren's uncle, Lee Williams, spearheaded the drive to end this ongoing racism, but it wasn't easy. My uncle in 1930 started work, 1930, yeah, 1930 started working for Canadian National Railways. And uh, he, he qu fairly quickly found out that uh, the working conditions for uh, blacks on the railway were not... Uh, nothing to write home about um, and could see the injustices of it. And initially he, initially he, he, he would say that, you know, he tried to just do his job, not worry about it and just, you know, do come home, get up, go back to work, do his job, blah, blah, blah. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't uh, really 
want to pay a whole lot of attention to it, but something uh, along the way happened and, and he started to, people in the community started talking to him and, and uh, trying to push him to become part of the, the union. So he became uh, chairman, I think, of the order of poor sleeping car porters and then uh, went to convention because they were allowed to go to conventions. So if, I think the first convention was in Montreal that he attended. Yeah, yeah. And at that convention, he put a resolution forward to end the discrimination in their collective agreement. And uh, it was ignored. The resolution was ignored. And so the next time he went to convention was in Toronto and he put the same resolution forward in Toronto. And uh, he says that, you know, from what he could see from the raised hands, he believed that they had a majority of votes that the resolution would pass. But the president of the day said the resolution had failed and it didn't pass. And so then that's when he uh, started looking at, okay, you know, what, what, what can I do? And that's when he started talking to John uh, Diefenbaker. Yes, that John Diefenbaker, Prime Minister of Canada from 1957 to 1963. Diefenbaker loved taking the train to Ottawa. Lee Williams was often his porter and got to know the garrulous Saskatchewan politician. And then in 1955, uh, my uncle Lee Williams, uh, who had the fortune, who was fortunate enough to um, be on a run from Winnipeg to, um, to uh, Vancouver, and he would pick up uh, uh, Prime Minister Diefenbaker when he was an MP. And Diefenbaker would get on Saskatchewan and he'd ride the trains going east to Ottawa, but he, he, he'd ride the trains. And so my uncle was fortunate enough to get to know him, of course, because he ran, he's, he, he rode by, uh, uh, um, on the sleeping car and my uncle would be the porter. So he got to know him and uh, he started talking to him about the conditions on the railway and not being able to be part of this other union and the wage discrepancies and not being able to get promoted and and being served uh, food that should have actually been thrown out, that sort of thing, uh, and the segregation of it. And so Prime Minister Diefenbaker uh, talked to him about the uh, uh, Canadian, I think I read down, oh, there it is, Canadian Fair Employment Act. Right, right. right? And so he talked to him about it and then he told him, what he needed to do in order to uh, present its case, right? And so through, you know, a few uh, trips and phone calls, he find my uncle Lee did that in 1955. And uh, nothing changed. Uh, and then uh, Lester B. Pearson became the prime minister 10 years later, I think it was 10 years later, Pearson was the prime minister and my uncle Lee contacted uh, prime minister Pearson at that time and, and told him that he expected that the law would be upheld and given the situation. And, and four days later, the response from the prime minister at that time was to tell the railway uh, CNR and CPR that they would, they would toe the line. And that's uh that they became part of the same collective agreement as the white workers and were, you know, able to get promoted. My uncle was the first, one of the first sleeping car conductors and then became right. the inspector or service manager, inspector afterwards. Uh, the collective, they became part of the Canadian Union of Brotherhood of Railway Workers. And my uncle Lee actually became president of that, of that union uh, shortly thereafter uh, because uh, 
he, the workers realized white and black realized that he was actually a fair individual and treated people fairly. And so he, though the white uh, workers had the, were the majority, uh, he got enough of their votes uh, to become president of that, you know, the Canadian Brotherhood of Railway Workers. Winnipeg and Montreal were the main urban hubs for the black porters, but Vancouver was also home to many. A black community took shape in Strathcona, close to the train stations. There was once a three-story building at the corner of Main and Pryor called the Porters Club, where porters met and socialized during their downtime. Among them was Frank Collins, the eldest of four brothers in Vancouver who all worked as porters. In the 1940s, Collins was elected president of the Vancouver branch of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, a post he retained for many years. As an interesting footnote, Frank Collins was also the brother-in-law of renowned jazz singer Eleanor Collins, who recently had a Canadian stamp issued in her honour. She is still living at the age of 102. For many years, Frank Collins also headed the BC Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, underscoring the close link between the porters and the overall fight for equality for blacks in Canada. The small but vibrant black community in Strathcona, where the Collins brothers lived, was known as Hogan's Alley. Warren Williams said it was a real draw for porters making a stopover in Vancouver. That's where they all went. They all went down to Hogan's Alley. Um, Vi's chicken, chicken Shack was down at Hogan's Alley, right? So they would, they would go to Vi's and they'd eat at Vi's. Um, it wasn't until late 60s, early 70s that they even actually uh, uh, were put up up in hotels to sleep they actually stayed they actually had cars sleeping cars on at the rail yard where the, the sightings that yeah where they where they slept right but yeah they would go to vise and they would uh, hogan's alley and and they would go to the cave that the cave downtown was uh, one of the hubs for uh black american and canadian talent and jazz and blues and rhythm and blues and you know marvin Gaye was there you know um, the supremes were there um what happened when I was a, a, uh, hmm, probably 14, um, my Uncle Lee was a deacon in our church, Pilgrim Baptist in Winnipeg. And we formed, a, the church formed a youth, uh, a youth group and a youth uh, uh, services. And through that, my Uncle Lee and uh, my uh, grandfather and other uncles that uh, were they worked on the railway at the time, uh, were able to get us all passes on the, you know, they used the family pass and took us all to Vancouver, took about 30 kids to Vancouver. And part of that trip was to go to Hogan's Alley. This is the black community in Vancouver. Wow. And we went to Vice Chicken Shack and, and all wow. that. it was, uh, it was a good, it was a great experience. Actually. It was a great experience. Yeah. One of the things about, um, uh, being black in Canada is, we're so um, now we're so dispersed, you know, like we don't have the same sense of community that I grew up with. Uh, but even with the sense of community that I grew up with in Winnipeg, I took the train when I was 16 uh, to Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And of course, Nova Scotia is where the, the greatest majority of blacks are and were. And it was, uh, it was uh, even for me, it was an eye opener, but it was like being in heaven. Lee Williams left a legacy few can match. 
In 2002, at the age of 94, he received an honorary doctorate from York University in Toronto in recognition of his lifelong commitment to the battle for racial equality. Warren Williams looks back on his Uncle Lee with real pride. Well, I think that uh, what he really showed people, is that, you know, we are, he refers to himself, and he died in 2004. And throughout his life, he would say, I'm Canadian. And uh, he believed that people were equal and people should be treated as equals and people should be treated with respect. And I think that's, that's the, one of the legacies. And the other is if you don't have to settle. Like, you don't have to settle. If you're willing to work for it, you can achieve. But it doesn't, it's not just going to be handed to you. So if you're expecting it to be handed to you, it's not going to happen. But if, you, if, you, if you're willing to work for it, you can I think that's the big one. And I think that for a lot of our, our family, especially, especially my age group and maybe, you know, 15 years younger, my younger cousins, they all learned that. They all learned that if you're, if you're willing to, if something is important to you and you're willing to step up for it, you can make it happen. Thanks to Warren Williams for adding his take on the history of one of Canada's most interesting unions, which is only now becoming better known. If you'd like to learn more about Canada's sleeping car porters, may I recommend the comprehensive account by Cecil Foster in his book, They Call Me George, The Untold Story of the Black Train Porters. And thanks as well to my hardworking podcast colleagues, Bailey Garden and Patricia Weir. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. We'll see you next time on The Line. Smooth